Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. It has a poetic ring to it. And we should love to the end, don't you think? Everyone agrees that love, true love, should overcome all obstacles and persevere to the very end. This idea is even reinforced in the literature of our culture, where inevitably a couple are thrown together and had thrown together by life's vicissitudes. They struggle to endure each other, eventually appreciate each other's qualities, finally fall in love, and live happily ever after, or at least until the closing credits or the end of the book. Some Christians will tartly reply that love is an action, not a feeling. How you feel is not the point. Love is serving others sacrificially, and such people will point to Jesus as the supreme example of that sacrificial love. Well, certainly we see on every page of the Gospels Jesus uh, pouring out himself as a sacrifice for, for, for us and for his people. But that does not prove that feelings are unimportant. These same gospel texts relentlessly highlight Jesus' compassion on the sick and on the suffering and the call attention to his delight to the children. If you want an example of cold-hearted self-sacrifice, you'll have to look somewhere else other than Jesus. Jesus certainly loved his disciples at the end of his life, by dying in our place for our sins. But St. John highlights that Jesus loved them all the way to the end. Jesus' love was not some last-minute lunge to the cross. Jesus' love was a love in, in which was in action every day, all throughout a day, every day all the way up to the end of his life. And on that day, there were certainly feelings involved, strong feelings, but not what you expect or desire. Now, looking at our text, in a society where everyone walked all day, one's feet became tired and dirty, so it was customary for the host to provide a servant to wash the feet of his guests before dinner. But on this occasion, there was no servant to wash their feet, so everyone reclined at dinner with tired and dirty feet. Then Jesus shocked everyone, in the middle of the meal, he got up and began washing the disciples' feet. It was a jolt to see Jesus doing this, to see their Lord doing servant's work and dirty work at that. It was a terrible humiliation for Jesus and also for the disciples because they're associated with him. And associated, I mean, it was his feet that, they wa that he washed. No one wants to be associated with a leader who has no self-respect. Peter characteristically objected, no doubt saying what everybody else was thinking, but was too uh, shocked or embarrassed to say. But Jesus, by this action, showed that he loved his disciples enough to humiliate himself and do the work of a servant, even dirty work of a servant. But the dirty work the dirty feet was not the only problem with the disciples. What the disciples needed was an attitude adjustment. 
And even after three years with Jesus every day, they still had not grasped the heart of Jesus and the heart of his, of his new society. What was shocking and humiliating to everybody else must become gloriously normal among Jesus' followers. The world will always glory in wealth and power, and the world will always despise humility and weakness. <laughs> the world will mock those who follow Jesus, thinking that they're losers. Christians are going to be undeterred by the hatred of the world. Christians will become known as those who shelter the lost, care for the sick, redeem lives, who, who welcome unloved children into their homes. Jesus loved his disciples enough to break the cultural norms and set the example of divine service. Now, perhaps if you try real hard, you can imagine yourself following Jesus in this way, <clears throat> maybe taking a mission trip to Guatemala or some such place, uh, traveling in a bone-jarring jeep far out into the countryside, serving the poor farmers there. Perhaps you can even imagine yourself cleaning out a poopy barnyard and just doing whatever it might take to, to care for those people there. But note that Jesus did all of this for his enemy. Right there, along with all the other disciples, was Judas. Judas, who in a few hours would hand Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. But Jesus made no distinction. He washed Judas's feet along with the other disciples' feet. Now, <laughs> earlier in his ministry, Jesus had told a parable about the kingdom. A parable in which a farmer went out to his field and saw that there were weeds growing among his crop. And so the farmer's servants asked, well, shall we pull out these weeds? And the farmer said, no, don't pull out the weeds, because if you do that, you'll damage the crop. Let, let everything grow, and then at, at, the, at, at the harvest, we'll separate the weeds from the good crop. Well, here you have an example of Jesus demonstrating that, in that Jesus was willing to let Judas continue in his role as disciple. Eventually, there's going to be a day of reckoning, and it's not going to be very long after this story. And it's going to become evident to everyone who Judas is. But for now, in this passage, Jesus loved his disciples even when they betrayed him. Now, Jesus could have kept this truth to himself, this truth about Judas. Judas was one of them. Judas had traveled with Jesus for three years. Judas had preached and cast out demons. Judas was part of this close-knit band of 12 people. It would be a terrible thing for Judas to betray Jesus. It would break the, 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 the fellowship bonds of this group of disciples. It would be deadly for Jesus, but also for the group. The disciples would never be the same again. The smart merciful thing would have been to protect the disciples from this truth, from this reality, as long as possible. <clears throat> from the horrible reality of Judas's betrayal. But no, Jesus just blurted out, one of you will betray me. Imagine the horror that descended over that group of people sitting around the table. One of you will betray me. Just imagine the impact as Jesus' words sunk in. Even though it was awful, 
Jesus loved his disciples enough to tell them the truth. Now, Jesus did all of this as an example for us. Now, if there were any doubt about that, Jesus dismissed that doubt by saying, quote, I've given you an example, end quote. Followers of Jesus will humble themselves to do the humiliating tasks that no one else is willing to do. Christians will endure the mockery of the world and serve the poor and suffering. Christians will love their enemies and do good to those who hate them. Followers of Jesus speak the truth even when it disrupts polite society. Does this describe us? Does this describe you? Mothers are perhaps the best example, after Jesus, of doing dirty, humiliating work. I'm talking about changing dirty diapers and cleaning after grubby children. I know fathers and grandparents do too, but it seems like mothers get the the brunt of that. Fathers also sacrifice themselves (coughs) for their families. Uh, My father and grandfather were uh, farmers. They got up before before it was uh, light outside, milked the cows, worked in the fields all day, uh, milked the cows again, and came home after dark. All day, every day. We didn't take vacation because you have to milk the cows twice a day forever. Um, And so your fathers sacrificed themselves for their families. And... um, but, but, but it's more challenging to sacrifice yourself when it's socially uh, uncomfortable. I, I, re, I remember a, a, a freshman at Lehigh University who was totally disgusting at meals. And by the way, I'm not making this up. This is literally true. I, I saw it with my own eyes. Um, this, this individual would eat with his hands. He ate everything with his hands. That's the only thing he ate with. And he got food all over himself, all over his clothes, all over the table, all over the floor. It was absolutely revolting. Eventually, he was expelled. But in the meantime, nobody would eat with him. It was just way too, too revolting to do so, except some Christians. There are some Christians who had compassion on him, and they ate meals with this individual. Well, and so we ask ourselves, does this describe us? Are we like that? Uh, Do we welcome the social misfits, or are we embarrassed to be associated with such people? A church full of clean, well-dressed, respectable people is what everybody wants. But, you know, churches like that sometimes are not spiritually healthy. Desperate people gravitate to places where they will be welcomed. And the Holy Spirit directs the the chronically needy people into places where they will get that help. And so we should ask God to make us those kinds of people. The essence of Jesus' example here is to serve others, not yourself. I personally would rather have my feet washed by a servant than to interrupt my own meal and get up and wash the feet of everybody in the room. I'd rather get a good night's sleep than to be up throughout the night with a crying baby. I'd rather have a relaxing evening at home than to do, as I did for 10 years, get up after dinner, go out into the cold, dark night and spend the whole night doing Bible studies with students. I'd rather talk with a close friend than to struggle in a difficult conversation with a troubled stranger. 
And how many times have I wished merely for some rest rather than the long, tiring journey to other campuses at some distance? And sometimes I, like you and all of us, give in to selfish desires. Sometimes uh, I, you know, I didn't measure up to the calling of Jesus. Um, and little trade secret here, occasionally driving over to Lehigh University, I'd even pray that no one would come. <laughs> Um, you know, we're weak. Uh, we struggle with these things. Jesus calls us to follow his example of selfless service to others. Well, you know, if you look around, you can find other examples of people who aspire to these things. Teachers, <coughs> fathers, businessmen, pastors. Um, I mean, the world is full of people who, who, are, who are aspiring to this kind of, uh, to, of, of following Jesus. The world also claims to admire Jesus, but they don't really. The world glories in wealth, power, and fame. I mean, read the news. Look, at, look on, the, on the internet. Uh, the world loves wealth and power and fame. Um, the world despises the virtues of Jesus. The world exerts a tremendous power to squeeze everyone into its mold. Christians are caught between this lofty example of Jesus and the powerful demands of the world, and the, the, the Christians are egged on into the selfishness by the sin that's in our own hearts. Christians struggle, and we don't always come out on Jesus' side. It's hard. It's hard for a mother, even a Christian mother who loves her children, not to grow weary of the relentless demands of motherhood and long to escape what seems like a life of drudgery. Loving all the way to the end just seems impossible. It's hard for a father, even a Christian father, who loves his wife and children to toil year by year, decade by decade, sometimes in jobs that are unappealing or even, or even awful, but to do that for the sake of his family, inevitably he's going to feel trapped in a treadmill of endless labor. Loving all the way to the end seems impossible. It's hard for children, even Christian children, who love their parents not to grow resentful or even angry at times by the constant chores and corrections. Every day is a long slog through drudgery. There might be occasional outbreaks of love, like for example on Mother's Day, but loving all the way to the end just seems impossible. Now, if you're thinking that the point of this passage is to encourage you to follow the example of Jesus and, uh, and try harder, try harder to love those around you, you are wrong. You're miserably wrong because you can't. You can't any more than I can. We try, we try, and we try, and no matter how hard we try, we just will not succeed. But if you're here today and you're at the point of despair, and thinking that uh, there's no way you can measure up to Jesus' uh, example. I have good news for you. Your feelings are working just fine. <laughs> it's true. It's true. This is an example that is hard for us to, to live, live up to. Loving all the way to the end for us in our human ability seems impossible because it is impossible. And here's where the gospel comes in. The gospel is the good news that Jesus makes the impossible possible. 
And more than possible, Jesus even promises that the, the impossible things in this world are certain, are absolutely going to happen in us by his power. The glorious good news is that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus lived the life we were meant to live, but he didn't just evacuate to heaven and play golf with the Father. Jesus promised to come to us, and he did. And Jesus has not stopped coming to us. Just as 2,100 years ago Jesus washed the disciples' feet, so today Jesus lowers himself, and he lowers himself to serve you, even in the midst of humiliating and difficult circumstances. Just as 2,100 years ago Jesus crushed the social demands of the first century, so Jesus today crushes the ungodly social demands in every century. Jesus walks by your side as you refuse to live by the world's expectations. Jesus is proud to be mocked with you when the world mocks you, when your ungodly neighbors and colleagues despise you. Just as Jesus told the uncomfortable truth to his disciples, Jesus is here with you today when you say things that make other people uneasy and uncomfortable. Jesus is here today to tell you the truth about yourself, your sin, his presence, his power, his love for you. The New Testament reminds us over and over that God is at work in us. God is at work in us. He is reducing the influence of sin. He's creating in us reservoirs of compassion that are not normal to us, but God is creating that, making that, growing that in us. He's prompting us to good works. God is making us more like Jesus. The call of the gospel is not to, to work up your reserve, resolve to work harder, to resolve to be more like Jesus. The call of the gospel is to humbly follow Jesus in the faith that he is working through us in the faith that it's his resolve, it's his energy, it's his determination to see these things through, accomplished in us. It's not our determination. And even though this is impossible on our own, we have the company of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of Almighty God who are making this possible in our lives. Now, many of us gathered together with family and friends on Easter Sunday, and so we should. Easter is the hope of our resurrection, and it would be perverse not to celebrate, especially if this is the last time that you'll be together. Our family, our five boys have been scattered all around the world, and it was a great pleasure for Ruth and me to have us all together over Christmas, the first time in a good many years, and we had a happy time. So only a sociopath would want to have an unhappy family vacation. So you would expect, you would have expected, that Jesus would want his last meal with his disciples to be a happy time, remembering the good times of ministry, reminiscing over the memorable moments of the previous three years. Instead, it seems that Jesus did everything possible to make this a miserable meal. He offended the disciples by washing their feet. He disturbed them by telling them that they're up next. 
He alarmed them by telling them that one of them is going to betray them. And he would alarm them even more by not telling them who that person was. Then he launched into one of his long, confusing monologues, which you can read in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and a long prayer, which you can read in chapter 17. No one is going to look back on this party with fond memories. We read this passage because it's in the Bible. It reveals more about Jesus. It fills in some gaps in the story. Um, And in the following paragraphs, Jesus makes some truly wonderful promises. But look, this was a dreadful way to spend an evening, and no one is going away happy. So why did he do it? Why did Jesus spoil a good meal and ruin everyone's night? John tells us Jesus loved them to the end. Jesus was unwavering in his love, and this passage shows us what it meant to love his disciples on that night. Jesus' laser focus was on loving his disciples. He wouldn't let anything intrude on that goal. Everything he said and did was calculated in order to love the disciples. Now, of course, you know, Jesus is not a spoil sport. Jesus loves a party. He began his ministry with, with, a, uh, the, the, the wedding, um, you know, with a wedding feast. And the call of the gospel is to join the eternal wedding feast in heaven with Jesus, right? Uh, so G- Jesus certainly loves a, a party. But along the way, and before we get to eternity, there will be times of uh, discomfort and, and even sorrow. And Jesus doesn't have any intention of lifting those sorrows entirely. He, sometimes he lifts them in part from time to time. But he has no intention of lifting all of those sorrows because it is through suffering that his love is revealed in its fullness. And it's through suffering that his love is perfected in us. Now, I hope, I hope that you all had a happy Easter. I, I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I hope that you all had a, a happy Easter. Um, but, you know, that cannot be your goal. Having a happy holiday cannot be your goal. Your goal must be the same as Jesus, to love each other, to love each other all the way to the end. And sometimes loving each other might mean humbling ourselves to the point of creating awkwardness for everyone. Sometimes we might buck the culture and look foolish or even hateful, even to other Christians. Sometimes love may demand that we tell the uncomfortable truth. We might offend or even anger people. We might lose friends. Now, those extremes are uncommon, but, you know, we fear them because they are real. Those things do happen and can happen from time to time. Surely no one who loves others will try to antagonize or offend them. But love does not always lead to happiness in the short run. Jesus doesn't set us an example here of a happy Easter. And the call of the gospel is not a call to pleasant holidays. The call of the gospel is to follow Jesus. And Jesus calls us to follow his example in sacrificial love. Now, we'll never do that on our own. Our our own resolve is inadequate. But with Jesus and by the grace of the Spirit, our love will grow to be more like his. And in eternity, all struggle and all, all awkwardness and all misery will be replaced by the glorious feast 
with Jesus. So let us pray. Lord, we come to you today ashamed, ashamed of our pride and laziness. We would never have washed our friends' feet. We recoil from offending our neighbors and colleagues. We would rather do anything than tell our friends uncomfortable truths. Help us, dear Jesus. We want to follow your example, but we're so far from it. Help us to believe the gospel. Help us to serve in faith that you are with us, enabling us to do the impossible. Help us to do the things the world considers humiliating or offensive, trusting you to speak and work in us. Help us even to love our enemies with the divine love that joins action and affection. We beg these things because of your mercy. In the name of him who loved us and loves us still, even to the end, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.